0: Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Welcome again to our worship at Christ the King. For those of you uh, perhaps joining us who were not with us last week, we are continuing this morning in a short series of sermons which I've informally given the subject heading, Race and the Gospel. As I explained last week, I decided to take a further break from our study of the book of Hebrews and to embark on this series in response to the events of recent weeks that have brought to the forefront of our collective attention the issues of race and racism especially in the North American context. Over recent weeks, I've concluded that as a pastor in this time, though I personally have only limited experience from which to speak on these matters, I concluded nonetheless it was important that we consider how as Christians we can approach the subject of race from the perspective of the gospel. My introduction last week uh, was rather long and outlined the objectives of the series in a general way. I won't take the time now to repeat all of that, except to say that I am convinced that an honest reckoning with the scriptures can, will lead us to a humble examination of ourselves, of our churches, and of our society when it comes to matters of race. As Christians, the truths of the Bible must shape our view of humanity. The commandments of the Bible must inform our ethics. And the pronouncements of the good news, the gospel focused on Jesus Christ, must shape our hope for the future and the work we do now in light of that hope. So though I said some of this last week, it struck me again this week that there are at least three basic approaches that one could take in addressing the subject of race from the scriptures. There may be more than just three, but there are at least, I think, three approaches. The first approach would be to focus on the truths that emerge from the doctrine of creation itself from the fact that, as Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Beginning there, one could focus on what it means to be in the image of God, what the implications of being in that image are for the dignity and equality of every human being irrespective of race or ethnicity. One could then consider the ways that that deep truth undergirds the Bible's broad concern for justice, and how in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul and James and John explicitly pick up on this in their teachings and writings. Along those lines, one could then look at the Bible's understanding of the fact that there are many nations and people groups, and how, as Paul says in Acts 17, it's because God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That could be one general approach taken. Maybe you could call it the image of God approach to the subject of race and racism. A second approach one could take would be to Proceed from the commandments that permeate the scriptures to love others, to love all others. We read some of these last week. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 commands. Love your enemies, Jesus says in Matthew 5. Do good to everyone, Paul writes in Galatians 6. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, our Lord says in Matthew 7. In this approach, one could consider the nature of what the Bible calls love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 10. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Or 1 John 4, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. The nature of God's love for all people and our expression of that love for others both in individual terms but also in larger structural ways that sees how love leads to values of peace and justice and reconciliation and so on, this would be another profound way in which to approach the subject of race and racism in the Christian life. So we could take the love one another approach to the subject. But it's a third approach that I'm attempting in this sermon series. This third approach does not operate independently of the other two, as I'm sure you already realize, but it does have a different starting point. Rather than beginning with the created equality of all persons in the first approach, or with the great commandments to love God and love others in the second approach, The third approach I'm taking in this series is to consider the nature of the gospel itself. That is, what is the content of the gospel? What does the gospel itself claim to be and to do in our lives and in the world? What is it that God's really up to, according to the Bible? What's the big picture? How is God bringing it about? What are the implications of that when it comes to how we think about race and ethnicity in the world today? And since the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh, who died and rose again, who ascended and who will come again, since who Jesus was and what Jesus did and why Jesus did it, are central to all of this, it likely won't come as a surprise that it is there that we'll be focusing much of our time, including our time this morning. Last week we were in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30, where we saw how Jesus himself began his public ministry with astonishing clarity and explicit focus on this point, that the good news and the liberty... And the favor of God that he himself claimed to bring as the Messiah was for everyone. That God's kingdom is not for one group to be part of to the exclusion of any other. It is not to be enjoyed more by one group than any other. No, differences of race or ethnicity are of no significance in receiving the benefits of God's kingdom. That's the first thing that Luke shows us out of Jesus' public teaching ministry. And do you remember what the response was from those who were there that day in Nazareth? They wanted to kill him. That was their response. They literally wanted to throw him off the cliff. It's significant, I think, that the first episode Luke relates of Jesus' public ministry points to Jesus' death. For Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God, they wanted him dead. And he would die. But as we're about to see in Ephesians chapter 2, it's Jesus' death that actually made that vision a reality. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the letter uh, to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. You heard Renata read the passage earlier in the service. No doubt some of you have studied this well-known text in the past. Without trying to accomplish uh, an exhaustive exposition of the passage, I want to begin with some structural observations that will lead us into the heart of what I want to uh, say this morning. Verses 11 to 22 divide into three sections, I think. The first section is verses 11 to 13, in which Paul urges his Gentile readers to remember. Remember your past situation, Paul says. You who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You were divided. You were separated, Paul says. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, verse 13 says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Paul's one-verse summary of what he'll go on to explain in more detail. But the point is that their former condition has been altered. Once they were separated, once they were alienated and strangers, but now they who once were far off have been brought near. God had foreseen that this would be the case. The imagery of far and near in that verse is borrowed from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 57, verse 19, where the prophet relays the speech of the Lord, who says, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, and I will heal them. The coming together of those who are far and those who are near has always been at the heart of God's kingdom promise. Jesus knew that. This is what we saw last week in our study of Luke chapter 4. The emphasis in this first section of our Ephesians passage is on what it was like before. The emphasis then in the third section of our passage is on what it's like now. We'll come back to verses 14 to 18 in a moment, which is the second section. But first, look with me at the third section in verses 19 to 22. You see there in verse 19 how Paul begins to draw a conclusion from what has come before in the beginning of verse 19. So then, he writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Referring to the language he used back in verse 12. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All that was once true in your past, Paul is saying, now has been radically altered. And I want us to focus on the changes we see there between the first and the third section, at least some of them, before we go back and look at the second section to see how It all came about. Notice how the Gentiles, who were described as strangers in verse 12, are now called fellow citizens in verse 19. That's a meaningful contrast of terminology. A stranger literally is someone from another tribe or country, So, in verse 12, when Paul used that term to describe Gentiles as being strangers to the covenants of promise, he was declaring that they were literally foreigners. But in verse 19, Paul says they are now citizens, along with other believers, the saints, in verse 19. They are now citizens together in God's kingdom. And Paul, I think, is stressing something more pointed there than we often realize. At least if you're like me, somehow you learned along the way to soften this language of stranger. Without thinking much about it, I think I always read that as Paul saying that Gentiles were strangers to the covenant simply because they did not understand them or perhaps did not know them. But that's not the full picture, at least not The complete picture. Paul means they were quite literally strangers to them because they were foreigners. Because they were from other places. Then, along with describing them as strangers in verse 12, Paul says the Gentiles in the flesh were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel in verse 12. And here again, Paul's using language that's more specific than we sometimes think. We see his intent most clearly in verse 19 when he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Aliens, technically, are those who live in a land but as foreigners. They're In a land, but they do not have the rights and privileges of citizens. So, as strangers and aliens, Gentiles were considered outsiders. But not now, Paul declares. Now they are members of the household of God. They've been adopted, granted all the rights, privileges, responsibilities of children of the Heavenly Father, and as citizens of God's kingdom and members of God's household, Paul goes on to say the Gentiles themselves are part of the holy temple of the Lord. That's where he ends in verse 22, "...in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So you can see, I hope, though we haven't covered every detail of it, how much things have changed for them when you compare the description in verses 11 to 13 with the description in verses 19 to 22. From two divisions within humanity, God has brought about reconciliation. And lest we think that this is all just playing out on the spiritual plane. As if Paul is in this passage, merely saying that now Gentiles too are able to be spiritually reconciled to God and be spiritually members of God's kingdom. He is saying that, but lest we think that's all he's saying, let's turn then our attention to verses 14 to 18, the second section of our passage. Because Paul's not just saying that. Rather, Paul here is making an intrinsic connection between that spiritual reality and the way in which, in Christ, Jews and Gentiles were to actually live together. Paul doesn't deny that there's been a profound reconciliation between God and Gentiles. Of course there has been. The same goes for the Jews. Verse 16 says, look there at verse 16, that through the cross, Christ reconciled us both to God in one body. But I take it that Paul's even greater point, at least the logically greater point in this passage, as in the end to which Paul's argument is running in this passage, Paul's even greater point is that the reconciliation Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross didn't end with the forgiveness of sins and our acceptance with the Lord that results from it, as profound as that reality is. Paul's even greater point is that on the basis of that vertical reconciliation with the Lord, there is now a horizontal reconciliation with one another between Jew and Gentile, citizen and stranger, household member and alien. For the gospel itself, Paul seems to suggest, is what brings about radical change in our relationships with one another, across all lines, be they lines of ethnicity and race, Or, from other passages we know, be they lines of gender or socioeconomic status, and on and on. Why do I say that? Let's have a closer look at verses 14 to 18. The key word in verses 14 to 18 is the word peace. Did you pick up on that earlier when Renata read this passage? It's there in verse 14. He himself is our peace. It's there at the end of verse 15. So making peace. Peace. It's there twice in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. And while, of course, peace in this passage includes the truth that by the cross of Jesus Christ, we and all people can have peace with God, that's not the end of it. That's not the end of the implications of the cross or the powerful work of the gospel that the cross facilitates. Because look back through those uses of the word peace with me and notice what's around them. In verse 14, Paul begins, for he himself is our peace. But then what is the immediate way in which Paul defines that reality? The verse continues, who has made us both one? And then just to make the point even more clearly, the verse doesn't end there. He's made us both one and, to further explain what that entails, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, Don't gloss over that final word, dear friends. Paul says there was hostility. Hostility between Gentiles in the flesh and what is called the circumcision, as verse 11 described it, between Gentile and Jew, defined as the fleshly physical difference between Gentile and Jew. It is perhaps, I think, and have come to realize over the years, one of our greatest handicaps when we try to read the New Testament, that mostly, I think, you and I fail to feel the weight of this hostility, we fail to sense and really understand perhaps the divide that existed between Jew and Gentile. That divide was not small. It was not simple, not shallow, not recent. It was huge, complex, deep, and centuries long. I would argue as others have better than I have that it was as intractable as any ethnic hostilities we experience today. The divide between Jew and Gentile was on several levels, of course. It was religious. Paul makes that very clear. That's more obvious to us. The Gentiles were without God in the world. The Jews knew the one true God. Christian Jews knew his son, Jesus the Messiah. Gentiles simply seemed utterly outside, religiously speaking. They were pagans who didn't know God. But the divide was also cultural, it was also social. You pick up on this in various places in the New Testament, you only have to think of all the ceremonies and the practices like circumcision, like dietary regulations, like rules of cleanliness, like holy days and so on that were in fact designed to set the Jews apart from the nations for a period of redemptive history. But as you come into the New Testament, of course, they had created huge cultural and social divisions, as several New Testament letters clearly attest. But the divide was not only religious and then cultural and social, the divide was racial. The divide was between a line that went back to Jacob and not Esau, to Isaac and not Ishmael, to Abraham and no other father. I think for some reason we tend to lose sight of that part of it. But this was as serious a division as any we have to wrestle with today. It was racial, it was cultural, it was religious, and it was characterized as hostile. We saw that in verse 14 at the end of the verse. We see the same thought pattern now again into verses 15 and 16. It's actually just all one big sentence. Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility by, beginning in verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, what ordinances are in view here? Just read on. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And you see, this is as clear as it comes. Peace Peace here means two people are made one people. It's one new man in place of the two, that's what the gospel does. Not because the gospel somehow erases all cultural distinctives or makes everyone magically look the same or act the same. No. How does the gospel bring about this one new man? It's through the cross. Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's a verse worth pondering at some length, dear friends. The vertical and the horizontal are both there, and they're completely interconnected. It's because all people are reconciled to God in the same way through the cross that we're reconciled then together. Do you see that? It's that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, as the only means of reconciliation for all people to God, brings people of different places and different histories and different identities and different cultures, and without eliminating those real distinctives, makes us one new man. God aims to create one new people in Christ who are reconciled to each other who for all their distinctives are not strangers, are not aliens, with whom there is no enmity, who are not far off, but who are now fellow citizens of God's household. I love how verse 18 puts it. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It reminds me of what Paul will later spell out in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, when he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And according to Paul, what is the result of all of this? What's the end result of all this talk about being reconciled to God in one body. We've already said it, but it's what he says at the end of verse 16. Paul says, God was thereby killing the hostility. What a wonderful word is thereby in that sentence, isn't it? It, Because it shows us the end goal. Here's the picture of what God is bringing about. Is the cross the ending of hostility between man and God? Yes, it's absolutely essential that that's the case. But it's not just that. It's inescapable in Paul's logic that the cross is the means by which God has killed the hostility, not just between himself and all people, but also thereby between all people groups. We see here clearly that the vertical and the horizontal reconciliation happened together and inseparably. God ordained the death of his son to reconcile alien people groups to each other in one body. One author puts it this way, the blood of Jesus is the only way that we sinners can come to God, and therefore the blood of Jesus is the way that God has designed for all ethnic groups to come to each other in peace. Keep in mind, dear friends, that the division of Jew and Gentile encompasses the entirety of humanity. Jesus Christ came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And this morning I ask, do we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ can do this, that it can actually kill the hostility that exists in this world. And if we do, do we then see and believe that the church, the one body of which Paul speaks, that's central to this happening? If we believe that, What might some of the implications be for our individual lives, for the life of the church? Well, there would be many. But I'll put this much out for starters, and it is only for starters. The preaching of the gospel does not properly end with the forgiveness of our sins at the cross. It's more like it starts there. The foundation, that foundation is completely essential. But precisely because the reconciliation with God that was won by Jesus on the cross is the basis on which all other reconciliation can be established. Does that make sense? I think it does. Paul writes near the end of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When we can think like that, when we can see in the cross the center of our worth and value and identity, then what happens to the way we see others? I suggest to you that gone will be all pride and all suspicion and all posturing and all deriving of value from what it is that sets us apart from others. And instead, what will come is a longing to dwell in unity because we know we are reconciled to God in one body through the cross. It is the reality of horizontal reconciliation between peoples that dominates this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. That ought to mean something for the value we as a church place on that. The gospel kills the hostility. That doesn't mean there's no work to be done for that to show itself as a reality, either in the church or in the world. That does not mean it will be easy. It won't be easy. It will require a long-term commitment that's willing to push through setbacks that will come along the way. But brothers and sisters, if we believe what the apostle has written in this passage How can we not desire to do that work? Whatever tensions existed between Jewish and Gentile believers in Ephesus ran contrary to the very nature of the gospel and would impair the witness of the church in the world. Jews could not view Gentiles as outsiders to God's promises, and Gentiles could not look down on Jews as those who were culturally rejected by most of society. Both groups formed one new people of God. That same message applies anywhere race or ethnicity or economic status divides us from one another. The fact that our vertical reconciliation with God has taken place has profound implications for all of life and all the world, of all places. It should be in the church where the power of the gospel to kill the hostility is most brilliantly on display. And then it should be from the church that the clearest and most compelling advocacy for racial justice in the world is to be found. Because that's what will demonstrate the fullness of the gospel and the diversity of the kingdom for which Jesus died. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.